Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Hoss Talks Foss. I'm here with Guy Harrison from Proven DB, who just gave a great talk, two great talks actually at Percona Live um, on MongoDB performance tuning, as well as, um, you know, on the changing face of databases and the evolution of databases. And so uh, Guy's written several books about databases over the years, and he's got two books currently authored and out there, and he's working on a third. So thought it'd be great to sit down and have a chat with him uh, today. So hi, Guy. How you doing? Hi, Matt. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the books that you currently have out. Well, um, I've got a, a, a fair few older books that um, no one's really interested in anymore. There's a couple on Oracle. Um, my first book was a book on Oracle tuning. This was way before um, open source databases were a thing. Um, and that was quite popular in the day. Um, we're talking about the 90s here. Um, I might have read it because I was an Oracle DBA back then. Okay. Well, it was, it was, I will modestly say it was quite popular um, at the time as, um, as there weren't sort of quite as many books in those days as there are now. Uh, I wrote the O'Reilly book on MySQL, um, uh, still procedure programming, um, work with the MySQL team. And that's where I met Peter Zaitsev, Zaitsev if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yeah, yeah, back Zaitsev. in 2003. Um, and I bumped into him, you know, forever since then and it's been great to see you know his his journey it's been fantastic right um and then um i wrote a few more books on oracle and then um 2015 i wrote next generation databases which was my attempt to take everything i'd learned about databases um in my role as um vp of engineering at quest software which is a large database tools company um and you know the emerging sort of trends that we saw in open source cloud NoSQL, big data, that sort of thing. Um, most recently, MongoDB performance tuning, the um, startup I'm with has been working um, using MongoDB as our backend and learned a lot about that over the last five years. Um, decided to put that down um, with my son, actually. So um, oh, very I'm nice. at the sort of like one end of the um, age spectrum and he's at the other. So hopefully we balance perspectives between I've got a lot of long-term experience that sort of might be relevant. He's got sort of like a modern developer's viewpoint. So, you know, and it was great working with him, obviously. Um, and um, and then right now I'm working on CockroachDB, the definitive guide with um, uh, two of the guys out of the CockroachDB team. So, so Guy, you've, you've seen many different databases over the years. And, you know, what, what's kind of led to this explosion of the number of databases? I mean, we've seen this as well. I know like some of the data and some of the things that I've brought up before are, you know, everybody's using many different databases now. They're not just choosing one. But it seems like every month there's a new database just kind of popping up. Um, you know, new new technology. Um, it's it's based on you know um, you know one of the, the 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 granddaddies. You know you know as as you mentioned in your talk, it could be you know Spanner. It could be you know um, you know uh, a document database. It could be you know something else. But yeah, you know what, what do you think is causing all this growth? Well, uh, you know for for a long for a long while the. Oracle and SQL Server and even MySQL to a certain extent had a sort of a stranglehold on the, the database market. There was everyone was using the same model, you know, the, the relational model, the same language, SQL. Um, and there wasn't much room for sort of innovation around that because, you know, businesses just weren't interested in anything else. There were a few object-oriented databases that were sort of like struggling to get attention and, and they just couldn't break through. 
but the the cloud and the internet really changed all that. We had suddenly we had applications that had to sort of span the globe and be always on. And you know, if, if there's one thing that the relational database just doesn't do all that well, it's handled downtime in a um, in a globally distributed way. Um, so you know, if you've got you can't distribute an Oracle database across every continent of the globe and expect it to stay up if there's any network issues. Um, no one does that. No one even tries. So that was sort of you know one of the pressures. And I guess the other was um, developers. Developers used not to be in charge of these decisions. So back when I was a developer, you got no choice and no say whatsoever in the technologies that we used in the application. There'd be some sort of senior architect or something who'd say, we shall use Oracle and we shall use Java. Um, but with open source uh, coming along, developers got a lot of, they could just pick up a database and just start running with it. They didn't need to sort of sign an invoice or anything like that. And, you know, by the the time we're talking about, you know, 2009, 2010, as well as sort of object-oriented programming, still wanting something different. There was also the pressures of continuous integration, um, wanting sort of like schemaless sort of databases, databases where the scheme could be completely defined in the code. So as soon as you checked it into GitHub, you could run a build, deploy, and you didn't have to get a DBA to come along and do an alter table. And so that, that was another pressure coming along. Um, as well as big data, you know, we had more applications with data that just was too voluminous and unstructured to be handled by these old models. So that sort of broke the back of the relational dominance, and that caused a huge amount of um, innovation from about 2009 on. And you're right, you know, like to, you think there's a new database every day at the moment, but in 2009, 2010, that was literally too, true. As soon as it became obvious that you were allowed to create your own database, um, you know, so many came out. It was kind of bewildering um but it's i think now we've seen um you know a certain amount of settling down um i can keep talking if you like but just no to, just well, to, i mean and i think to, that you know one of the interesting things that you mentioned there was you know that that shift with the developer focus and the developers kind of being able to start on their own i mean i i i, I mentioned i was an oracle dba back in the day in the early uh you know 2000s late you know, or before 2000 and the, the late 90s. Um, and I remember projects that I wanted to work on. If I wanted to, you know, use an Oracle database as a backend, there's just there's no way because the cost of just getting something even hmm. small was, you know, improbably high. And so, you know, it, it became something where you really needed to, you know, have that, you know, alternative. And um, I think that that shift that's happened over the last you know, 10 years to where developers get to choose has caused a couple of interesting, you know, things to happen. Number one, um, it has really facilitated a lot of growth in the number and types of databases. You know, I know, you know, you've talked a little bit about, you know, the GraphSQL databases for some things. You've talked about, you know, some of the the more, um, you know, Hadoop-like, you know, things for the quote-unquote data lakes. You've talked about, um, you know, some of the document databases, some of the NoSQL databases, some of the relational databases, all these different databases have kind of grown and developers tend to choose what they're most comfortable with or what they think will fit that particular application. And now you've got all the, who used to hold the keys to the kingdom, the infrastructure teams getting thrown over, like, you know, oh, here's a new database you have to support. And I know that I've seen this from a uh, operations perspective, especially from a lot of people that I've talked to, 
you know, they have no practical experience in, let's say, running MongoDB. And all of a sudden, oh, we developed this application. It's in Mongo. Deal with it. Um, it's an interesting space. Yes, that, that's, that's, that's very true. And um, you see when you're working with companies like MongoDB, you see when they start to make that transition into the operations centers and when they've suddenly, it's not just about developers. I've also got to sort of provide tools and facilities that make life easier for production DBAs in larger organizations. You see their sort of shift in focus and the things that they're concerned about. Um, and it's part of the growing up for a, a true open source, well, not open source, whatever, but, but the, the life cycle of a, of a modern database is to start with developers and then to have to try and sort of cross that chasm into sort of like large-scale production because these people can still knock back um, the database. So everyone for the developers say, I built this beautiful thing, it's on MongoDB. But if MongoDB falls over every day in production on a, on a sort of global scale, um, then it doesn't matter. The developer can say what they like. You know, a large organization is going to say, no, rebuild it in something else. You know, we're going to go to Amazon or something. Um, but the other part of that equation is, you know, at the very same time that, that um, this is happening, um, we're seeing databases in the cloud really start to take off. And at that point, you've got this, you know what, you don't, you guys don't even need to worry about it because we're not going to go to MongoDB in your um, data center. We're going to jump to MongoDB Atlas in MongoDB's own cloud and they'll work, they'll manage the backups and they'll manage security and so forth. And this is, um, you know, smoothing the way, I think, for, you know, it's giving, in my opinion, it's given um, a really good business model for open source to aspire to, you know, developers on premise use the open source download free to free go with it use the cloud maybe but when it comes to monetizing we prefer people to come and use our fully managed cloud and that's how we make our money with the fully managed cloud implementation of what can still be a sort of like an open source product we don't need to sort of charge enterprise licenses and all the messiness that happens there we're trying to persuade someone to pay you for essentially nothing you know you're running it on your own hardware you've got your own dbas what are you paying for when you buy mongodb enterprise you know just the ability to ring up every now and again um no so and i mean I, I think that the cloud model has proven itself out and it's kind of turned databases into a bit of commodity um the one thing that i've noticed and I, i'm curious if you've seen this as well that as we've made things easier especially for developers to get started um you know the the, the barrier to entry has gone down but also the skill level of those who are, you know, having to interact or solve some of these problems has also kind of decreased. So, you know, when there is that kind of big scale problem, um, it tends to be a bit more difficult for them to figure out because they don't have that kind of database background. They don't have like maybe the basis to troubleshoot some of the things. And a lot of times from a fully managed perspective, uh, cloud providers tend to be very focused on the operational aspects like the backups, like upgrades, making sure that you're, you know, patched and things. But from a performance perspective, a lot of it's still on, you know, mm -hmm. the developer uh, to take care of their own database and make sure that, you know, it's designed correctly and it's implemented correctly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're right. Even more so than than in the past where you typically have the developer would hand over the application um, to a production team, now the developer in a DevOps model is still pretty much fully responsible for performance in production and needs to um, have a, a bigger or a, or a more sophisticated understanding of database performance um, at scale. This is kind of one of the reasons I wrote the MongoDB book because, you know, working with a lot of MongoDB developers, it's so easy to pick up and get going. 
um, that developers were sort of like not exactly clueless, but not quite as concerned about the the or not quite as as informed about the fundamentals of performance management for a database as as perhaps they were you know when when oracle was the only database where you just knew that you had to you, you had to know how to tune a sql query you had to know how to um, use explain you had to have a pretty good grasp of indexing and and so forth um, that having been said you know i've been around you know an embarrassing long long time and you know a lot of my career has been sort of like picking up after developers who didn't know how to tune their database <laughs> I, so I think you. that's that's one thing that never changes yeah and and i think that you know it's it's it it is an interesting space because i think that from a cloud perspective or even like a database perspective um a lot of the challenges that i see with people who have with you know you know whether it's you know the you know any of the cloud providers or any of the databases service it's because of a misunderstanding more than it is that the technology's bad and it's that kind of marketing message around hey this is fully managed because people think oh well you know it'll just perform it'll just scale it'll just handle everything and i never need to worry about it and a lot of people just end up paying a lot more money because they upgrade to the next size to the next size to the next size um, to try and get better performance better scale um, and so that's why you know you, you know your book on mongodb performance tuning is very interesting and, you know, Mongo was designed to be easy. It was designed for developers. And it is a beautiful piece of software that really enables developers to move faster. And it speaks more closely to a developer's natural kind of like development process than, you know, a relational database does. Um, and so that's why, you know, helping them understand that, you know, hey, there are some things that you need to worry about. Um, is important. Now, in the book or, you know, in your, your travels, as you've talked about MongoDB and uh, talked about some of the performance issues, are there a couple that you might share that these are common things, like, you know, one or two things that it's like, these things always happen and you should watch out for them. They're common mistakes. Oh, sure. I mean, they're, they're pretty basic, really. Um, most developers understand that they need to, to use an index, but um, a lot stop when they're just using any index. And uh, you, if you've got more than one filter condition in a query, you can you can construct a variety of different indexes to support that. And the difference between just any old index and the best index is typically, you know, several orders of magnitude improvement. Um, so that um, that's one. I think another thing is... Um, uh, as a developer, you really need to know the tools that MongoDB provides for you to, to track performance. And so like all databases, there's there's a profiler that captures slow queries. There's a, a command that you can use to see how MongoDB is going to execute um, and there's um, execute the query. And there's sort of system statistics that in MongoDB's case generates about a thousand different metrics. And like that's hard to know. Of, of those 1,000 metrics, which are the ones I need to, to pay attention to? Um, but um, you, you need to, you, you know, if you want to be a professional developer in MongoDB, you should know those three tools. You shouldn't just say that's for someone else or I don't care or it all worked well on my laptop. You need to understand how to how to work with that. Um, if it wasn't so, for users, all applications would be fast, I swear. Yeah, well, sure. Without data in a database, data's, a database is usually fast. You know, like you've oh, seen yes. this, I've seen this a zillion times. It worked fine until you put some data in the table or the collection and then it started to be slow. Um, and the, the final thing is, um, uh, you know, there's there's a sort of like a, a, a systematic way to tune databases, like there is a systematic way to tune the engine of a car. You know, you don't 
Um, and that systematic way is to work from the workload first. You know, what what am I asking the database to do? I'm asking it to do, you know, too much. Um, can I make its life easier? Can I make it work smarter with indexes? And then after that, you start looking at memory to avoid I.O. And only when you've done all that, do you start doing things like, you know, upgrading the disks or sharding. Um, those things, those those operational things should be done last when you've got the workload right. Because if you do them first and then do the workload second, you might find that, you know, I, I bought three new MongoDB servers to shard everything out, but then I found I added one index and I didn't need them. So you always work sort of down from the application into the, into the hardware in, in that order. Well, and it's um, funny because nowadays um, performance equals dollars more than ever mm. before. Because, I mean, back, you know, when we did Oracle, you know, yeah, you, you know, you might have to get more memory. You got bigger boxes. But, I mean, let's be honest, ordering hardware or a bigger box, that was sometimes a six to 12-month procurement process at, at the best of times. Now, when you're talking about performance, it could be, you know, you know, hey, you click a button and it upgrades to a larger instance in seconds. And, yeah. um, you know, that performance impact, if you, you know, develop something and architect it a little wrong could be massive. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've, I've had the same experience. You know, you used to have to tune because you had no choice because hardware upgrades were so difficult. Now you can just increase the amount of virtual hardware, you know, very quickly, um, but it's going to cost real dollars, immediate dollars. And, and another way, you know, I, I just think, I don't think about this all the time, but, you know, just, just blindly consuming more electricity, it's not really very responsible environmentally, is it, either, right? You know, like yeah. if, you, if, you, if you're a big organisation, you've got money to burn and you sort of like quadruple the amount of electricity your data centres are using, you're not doing anyone a favour, right? You're spending money and you're also sort of like spending resources that we should be conserving. So, you know, everything goes to sort of like make sure the application's efficient. Um, and the application code, not just the database code, you know, the application can cache and can sort of avoid asking the database for things that it already knows and stuff like that. It's that, That's been true forever. You know, most of the fundamentals of database tuning are the same for, for all the different types of databases, and most of them have been true now for uh, a ridiculously long time. But the cloud does change the dynamics of um, of how you you have to pay for your mistakes, I suppose. So I'm curious because I, I kind of hold a weird view when it comes to schemaless databases. Um, and, and I use that term kind of loosely because I don't believe like, so Mongo, a lot of people say it's schemaless. I don't believe that it really is schemaless because you still have to do schema validation. It's just, you have to do it in the application and it pushes kind of that validation around. And if you don't design what that, you know, quote unquote schema looks like, you end up wasting space and could cost performance cycles as well. I, I'm curious, what do you think of that? Like, I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is it, is it really responsible to just kind of throw whatever you want in? Should you, you know, should you really structure your data more? Yeah, no, no, it's still got the same, just because there's no create table statement doesn't mean that you don't have to work out what your collection or document structure is uh, in mongodb um we have a chapter on this in the book obviously it's it's sort of you know the same in, in a way it's got a lot of the same considerations as relational modeling but um and you'll see it in all the mongodb you know um material on their on their website there's a lot of talk about do i 
link everything? Do I embed everything? Um, so for instance, you know, the, the naive model for MongoDB is I just have an object and I just dump it into um, the database's adjacent document and it's got repeating groups in it. You know, it's got arrays and arrays of embedded objects. But MongoDB can only have 16 megabytes in that one object. So you can't put it, for instance, you can't put every tweet for a user if you're doing some sort of like Twitter-like application. You've got to break it out somehow. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, you might have enough room to put every um, line item for an order. That might always fit in 16 megabytes. If you do things like repeating the, the name of a product in um, the embedded document, when you need to change the name of a product or change its price code or anything like that, you're going to have to update it in not one spot, but a, a zillion different spots, you know, as many as many documents as there are orders. And all of those trade-offs um, are just as real today in MongoDB as they were 10 years ago in MySQL. It's just a matter of, you know, what sort of denormalization do we want? Um, we don't sort of have quite so easy joins, so we want to avoid splitting stuff up, but we can't embed everything in the same document. So there's a whole sort of discipline for MongoDB, and it comes down to whether you link documents or embed them or do some sort of hybrid pattern. Um, these things are reasonably well understood now. Um, but again, but you're right in that MongoDB just makes it too easy. I'll just, the first thing I think of, bang, that's my um, document and I'll change it later. But changing it later is still an expensive operation. It still potentially requires you to restructure all the data you've added to the application today. Yeah. And what's interesting, you know, is not only, you know, Mongo has has some of these things that, you know, originally were designed to be very, document oriented to be very focused on you know the developer and thinking like a developer so that that kind of schemaless push more validation to the to the code um but over time they've started to gradually introduce more relational like features um or things that would be traditionally in an rdbms similar to other databases because you know overall i've seen this kind of interesting trend as you know companies uh, mature and they develop these kind of purpose-built databases, whether it's a graph database, whether it's relational, whether it's a data warehouse and analytics system or a document database, they start to incorporate the ideas from other databases. And you mentioned this in the talk that you gave, um, you know, on the next generation databases that Oracle has started to include everything in the kitchen sink in their portfolio of databases. Uh, but I'm starting to see like, you know, Mongo, for instance, they've added transactions. Of course, they want, you know, more SQL-like interface, you know, and they're, they're starting to move more towards that. Same thing with analytics, you know, you know, column stores, you know, introducing this or relational databases introducing more no SQL-like, you know, interfaces, JSON, whatnot. Um, why all of a sudden, like, you know, we've gone to these different extremes where, ooh, this database is really, really good at doing this one thing. Oh, now we're going to add these 20 different things as a bolt-on after the fact. Any thoughts on why we're seeing that kind of trend evolve? Well, primarily, um, th these companies are just chasing their customers. Um, okay. And um, their customers are saying, you know, you know, they're going into deals and they're losing deals because they don't have transactions or because, you know, someone wants a, you know, advanced feature that they can't support. In, in MongoDB's case, you know, as they, we talked about it before, you know, growing up past the developers, uh, MongoDB's done really well in some uh, companies that I wouldn't have thought they would have done so well in, including banks, right? So they've managed to persuade some banks to use them 
even before they had transactions. But they clearly, you know, banks are going to say, look, I, I need transactional integrity. I can't handle this idea that, it, you know, my update might, may or may not be consistent. Uh, so they, they chase their customers and their customers say, you know, we want transactions. They say, we want to analyze the data. We want to use Tableau to look at the data in the database. So MongoDB adds a SQL bolt-on. Um, meanwhile, if you're Postgres or, you know, Enterprise DB or your Oracle or your SQL database, you've got developers who are saying, you know, we like working with JSON. We don't want to work with tables. So you sort of increase your JSON support within the database. And now you've got this case where MongoDB is a JSON database with some SQL support. And you've got these SQL databases that have JSON support and they're strengthening on both sides until, you know, they're converging again. You know, it's it's kind of inevitable, I think, that um, you you don't want to be a niche database forever. It's not the best, you know, it's not the best way to capture market share. I, I guess the exception is the graph databases that seem to be fairly content to stay in that niche because their model is so different that they feel they can't compete head-to-head -head against, you know, general purpose databases, but they feel that they've got the edge in this one case. But we, we see graph databases being added, graph capabilities being added to other databases who are saying, well, you know, we think we can support that niche as well. Now whether it whether it works out that way in the long term, I guess we we have to wait and see. The graph capabilities in MongoDB and Oracle are pretty weak compared to Neo4j or TigerGraph. Um, and so if you really have a graph workload at the moment, you really do want a specialized graph database. But you know who knows where we'll be in 10 years. So one of the interesting trends that I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen this, um, a lot of companies, especially the larger companies that have very uh, big workloads, are starting to invest more in designing their own versions of whether it's Postgres, MySQL, um, other open source databases. They've started to kind of codify that. And and this, this isn't a new trend. It's just I see it accelerating a bit because, you know, Google and Facebook, I mean, Facebook obviously has created many different databases. I mean, the original Cassandra, um, mm. you know, comes from there. Um, you know, HBase heavily influenced from there. Um, you know, but now I'm, I'm starting to see, you know, different, you know, people have different takes, you know, and, and that's, you know, starting to spawn off new projects, right? Um, you know, you mentioned some of the uh, kind of new SQL type things, whether it's Cockroach or Yugabyte. And those were, were designed a little bit differently, but they take components of Postgres, for instance, and incorporate it into their product. Um, you know, we had a talk from Uber where Uber did their own document data store, um, you know, uh, at, you know, at Percona Live. Um, you know, we, we've we've heard from the folks over at PlanetScale about VTES, um, which was built to handle YouTube scale, but it's built around MySQL. So what, what do you what's your take on like these? databases that are starting to be evolve or bolted on to, you know, kind of meet this new scalable workload. Um, you know, where do you see those going? Well, um, you know, I'm not deeply familiar with those. Um, perhaps you might have more experience with them, but in the very large organizations, you've got um, you, you, the, the strength of expertise where you can say, you know, <clears throat> Postgres is almost okay for us, but we need, this one more thing, or we think, you know what, we think we can get some competitive advantage by having 
a unique database, one that's no one else has got that has some unique features. And you've got, you know, PhDs and, you know, super developers, and you can give that a shot. And developers are always, you know, really keen to build their own databases because there's always something wrong with the one they're using. So you've <laughs> that got true. that, you, true. you know, if you let developers do it, they'll do it. And a lot of times they they don't, these projects don't come to much. You might remember Project Voldemort from LinkedIn. Um, I remember Jay Krebs, I think, was the inventor of that, and that went that didn't sort of like get outside of um, LinkedIn. But then he went and did Kafka, and that did you know get out of LinkedIn. So these innovations out of these you know really massive companies, you know, sometimes they just become a sort of like a flash in the pan inside that company. Sometimes they become you know a significant part of that company's competitive advantage, and sometimes they break out and become part of the open source. Um, ecosystem and we all get to benefit from it. But for the vast majority of us, you know, we should not be thinking about, you know, modifying a, an existing database. We should be thinking, we, we should have the choice, you know, all the choice you talked about at the beginning of, of, of this session, you know, gives us a lot of sort of, a lot of things to choose between. And hopefully, you know, we can find something that's good enough and get on with the job of building an application because building, <laughs> right, yeah. when you're building a database, you're solving your own problem. You know, you're not solving your, your customer's problem. So you should be, you know, choosing the best database making a good decision there, spending time tuning it. But, you know, if you're building a database, then you're probably not building, you know, user functionality that's um, really going to make a difference. Okay. And at ProvenDB, you've got your own kind of unique database there, which is a blockchain database, right? Yes. Yeah. So we, um, um, our, our aim is to sort of be at the intersection of database technology and blockchain technology. So, you know, now I'm, 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 I just can't help going into pitch mode here. So just forgive me as, as I do it. That's okay. It, you Go know, into pitch mode. And all that. Um, but one of the things that I noticed when I was working with databases, you know, for most of my professional life is that we didn't really have any way of guaranteeing the contents of the database. You know, I knew as a DBA that I could just manipulate the database and leave no trace. And, you know, beyond that, you know, you could get down to the database files and, and change bits and bytes in there or go straight to the disk. And so when when the database says, you know, this this row or this document was inserted on this timestamp, there was really no particularly good reason to believe it. You know, you're just really trusting the developer or the DBA um, that they hadn't been corrupted or that no hacker had got in and changed that. And then blockchain changed, um, gave us the ability for the first time to have immutable records where we could be sure that no one had manipulated them since they'd been, you know, added. But there was no way you could build a, a sensible application on top of a blockchain platform. They just didn't have the storage capability, no schema, you know, bad performance, bad economics. So what we've done at ProvenDB is we've added to MongoDB as our base platform um, a sort of an anchoring system that takes the data in MongoDB and creates digital signatures and anchors them to the blockchain transparently to you. You don't you don't have to do anything for this to happen. Um, and then if you want to assert that, you know, like to an auditor um, or, or to some other regulator um, or to a customer that, no, this is the record, this is the proof of identity document, this is your will, this is the accounting transaction, these are the legal signatures, um, you can prove without any doubt whatsoever that the dates of these documents are, are correct um, and that they haven't been tampered with. So that's just kind of the short elevator pitch. For, so so for it's, a, it's, a, it's really certifying that those documents are legit. That's really yeah. what it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a signature, you know, that, that 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 can guarantee that's and it's important because right now so many people um, have so many needs for compliance issues and, you know, to, to make sure that their data can match what government regulators might want. 
um, it's it's a crazy sure. environment. And as a society, you know, we are we are being bombarded with fake and fabricated news and and information. We need to have a way that we can trust the information in our world because we've gone when we use paper and other sort of like physical media, um, we could look at that paper and we could forensically check it and we could sort of you know even carbon date it. You know, there's lots of things we could do to say, okay, this is this is real. This is a real piece of information. Now, you know, we can we can copy and manipulate digital information so easily that we're all at risk for, you know, well, as you know, one of the things that's coming up is we'll be able to take, you'll be able to take this video and make me say whatever you want with a piece of software that you can just with download. With fakes and things like that. Um, and that's the only protection, I guess, that we can have out of that is that as this video is uploaded, we create a, a cryptographic signature of it and anchor it to a blockchain so that at least I can say, no, 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 this is the original. I never said that. Um, about your mother, Matt. Um, you know, it's a lie. You know, and so that's you know that's kind of our our mission there. Um, so you know, that's um, yeah. I've I've always wanted to sort of do something, you know, unique. Um, you know, I've followed a lot of databases. I've been a commentator and and a practitioner, and um, um, it's been great to sort of um, have a have a shot at sort of like adding something you know worthwhile to the database ecosystem. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Guy, thank you for sitting down and chatting with me. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, Guy has a couple books out. Um, head on over to Amazon. You can check them out. Um, you know, the MongoDB performance uh, tuning book and shortly a book on CockroachDB, which um, will be very interesting to read. Um, you can also check out Guy's uh, Percona Live sessions, uh, which are up on YouTube as we speak. Guy, thanks for yeah. hanging out with me for a little bit. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I should just quickly shout out, Pocona Live was the best online conference I've attended since the pandemic made online conferences oh, such really? a big thing. But uh, by far, um, best, most most well-organized, best um, content. And, and the, the attendees were really engaged. It was just great. Oh, we love to hear that. Um, we're, we're glad that you had uh, a good experience there. Um, you know, obviously, it's hard when it's remote but we're glad we got this right. Excellent. Good job. Okay. Thanks a lot, Matt. All right. Thanks a bunch, Guy. Wow. What a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.